not that interesting, so I don't necessarily want to speak for 30 or so minutes without being interrupted. We'll On the other you. hand, there's lots of uh, off-topic issues that I'm happy to uh, get into, particularly uh, my favorite, which is macroeconomics, where we are in the economic cycle. And, of course, uh, the imminent announcement is whether uh, PAL is going to be renewed uh, as Fed chair and whether or not that's going to happen. But when it comes to success and where we are at, at the cycle, I think it's extraordinarily important when we think about everybody that's here, everybody that's on Zoom, uh, they pretty much have one thing in common. They've had success. And I get the fact that most investing philosophies are all about more money is better than less. I think that that tends to be the reason that people take risk. But when we approach philanthropy, we are often incredibly risk adverse. Why is that? So we have a bucket of risk dollars that we're willing to go and we're going to go buy an IPO of some electric vehicle company that hasn't even produced one vehicle and it's now worth more than Ford and we're like, great, I'm a genius, I've done this. But then when it comes to philanthropy, we're going to look and see, okay, we're, what's been around for 150 years and is doing the same model and I'm going to invest in that. So let's think. I, I'm going to put all my money into Stop and Shop because that's essentially the same thing. You go into a grocery store, you buy it. Maybe you get your green stamps and you cut it and you get a little discount. That's sort of the existing approach to philo uh, philanthropy. To me, we need to take risk. We need to think of philanthropy in the same way that we think of venture capital. The term that we defined at, at the Robin Hood Foundation, for those of you who are not that familiar uh, with the Robin Hood Foundation, so after the 1987 market break, uh, I at the time was working with uh, Paul Jones, a tutor, myself and Paul, Glenn Dubin and David Salzman. We said, hey, uh, New York's been good to us. We want to be good back to New York. We also felt that at that point, uh, New York, because of the magnitude and the speed of the decline, would suffer financially, and we wanted to do things differently. So like a lot of VCs, we went around. We said, huh, okay, who's doing this in philanthropy? Who's doing that? And we made the decision, as a lot of entrepreneurs do, that we want to build we don't want to buy. So we started Robinhood Foundation. So the first unique thing about that was we don't, to this day, we don't have a endowment. We are market people. We said, okay, if the marketplace validates what we're doing, we're going to be able to raise the money. And the second thing we said is we looked around at a lot of not-for-profits and we said, ooh, they really pay a lot of money for O&A, for overhead and, and administrative expenses. And we're like, I am not donating to do that. So as Mark said, I'm a huge Michigan guy. 
and they're always after me for to give money. I don't know why. And they're like, hey, and we have this huge endowment. And I'm like, how much do you give away? They go, oh, we give away 5% a year. So I'm like, okay, let's pretend I give you $10. And now you're going to go take, I'm a, but I'm really going to give you $0.05. Cents. You have to spend it this year because that's our philosophy. So at Robinhood, if you give a dollar in the next 12 months, that dollar is going to go out the door to not-for-profit. The other thing is the board pays all the overhead and administrative expenses. So if you give a dollar and you see a staff person or you see the CEO or you go into the office and you see a nice uh, screen for conferences, none of your dollars are going to that. It's all going out the door. So let's just speed date here for a second. First year, four of us met in Paul's apartment. We gave away $62,000. Fast forward to 2020, the pandemic, we had a separate effort for that, and we gave away, between the core programs and the COVID relief effort, about $200 million. Pretty impressive. We are the largest private foundation in New York City. But What's the distinguishing factor? Okay, yeah, we're known primarily a little bit as the uh, hedge fund. We've been uh, philanthropy, not-for-profit. We were very fortunate. Uh, Michael Novogratz just joined our board, as you know, Mr. Crypto Galaxy Financial, and at our benefit, uh, he gave a $25 million matching grant. So if anybody in here wants to skip breakfast and take that breakfast money and match the $25 million, we will be very happy to take that. But we, so now what do we do? So we have three things. Peter, on you our said board. you wanted to be interrupted from time to time. What's uh, that? You said you wanted to be interrupted oh, from time to time. Just not by you. Oh. <laughs> well, since I've already done it once, uh, up until what date can we match that $25 million with Novogratz? Uh, I think that, like most things, when it comes to money, it's going to be a rolling close, right? So, sure, we'd love to close it by the end of the year. Uh, but like a new venture capital fund, there'll be sliding closes, you know. It's, it's uh, like, you know, think about the old salesperson where they go, this is a limited sale. It's limited to all people that want to buy it. So the, the board itself is comprised of what's interesting is, like all boards, and this is for private companies or not, you have people that c can give or get. But the thing that when we first started this, we realized, like, what do we know about not-for-profits? So we were fortunate to bring in real experts, Marion Wright Edelman, who's uh, the, the legend, who started Children's Defense Fund and, and was down in showing Robert Kennedy uh, the uh, abject poverty in Mississippi. We bought on Jeffrey Canada, started Harlem Children's Zone, and Mary McCormick who ran the fund for the city of New York. So that was great, except nobody's going to go to a benefit with a, with a bunch of guys like us and policy experts. So then we bought on a little pizzazz, and the person that totally changed 
Robin Hood, its growth, its thing was John Kennedy Jr. When John joined the board, needless to say, everywhere he went, people followed him when he was there and invited people. So that really gave us uh, a push. And I'm actually personally, I still get sad to this day when I when I think about uh, the tragedy of his plane crash. And more than anything, I give his mom credit because he and and his sister of all the sort of that Kennedy clan are, are really normal. So I, I apologize for going on that side. So now we've grown and what do we do? So we look at ourselves as a VC in philanthropy. So we take risk, we take early stage, see, we grow them, and then we also do established organizations. So you have it. Now like every company, you're only as good as your management and, and your staff. And, and we have, oh, wow. Uh, and we have wonderful staff, which is extraordinarily fortunate. So what do I say, and where are we now, and what are we doing? Anybody think that uh, when they're investing, they're looking at technology? Huh. Yeah, maybe that makes sense. So we're, we're fortunate because uh, Robinhood has been able to attract some of the best talent. The best, some of that is uh, Jeff Bezos' brother, Mark, helped us for 10 years grow, and his mother is on the board of Robinhood. And so what are we doing? We set something up called Blue Ridge Labs, and it's an incubator for technology and for apps for people who are in the community that need to use technology. And we've set up a volunteer group of 1,000 New Yorkers called Design Insight Group for things that they need. And then, this is another frustrating thing for me, we're a not-for-profit. So if we help set up a technology company and we give them, we give them a, a, a grant, we can't take equity in that company. A few of these have gone on and become profitable and Andreessen Horowitz and others have invested in them and that personally annoys the hell because I'd like to see all that money coming back into the foundation. So what is this? So let's think about it for a second. One of the issues that we've seen and we've seen uh, the stories if you read New York in the post about Rikers is people, kids particularly going to Rikers because they can't make $500 bail. And you're shaking your head and going, oh my God, that's... And then what happens? The process is they go there, they sit around for a while, the court pleads them out for time served, and they're like, great. But they have to check the box. So now you've been com convicted of a crime. And that basically ruins your life if you're a young person. And more so than anything... It happens to not wealthy people of color. So this gentleman developed an app called Good Call, where you download it to your phone, and if you're picked up, you click on this, and it because you get your one phone call. Uh, most people end up calling their mother, their best friend. That's not really so helpful. But this connects you to legal aid, right? A not-for-profit traditional that Robin Hood serves and 
then you go, you start the process. If they can provide that bail money, keep you out of prison, keep you out, prevent you from checking the box. Another one is for an example, and and when I hear these things, it's just like when you go and you're out there and investing and you see a good idea that you haven't thought of, you think two things. Jesus, what an idiot I am, or at least I think that all the time. Why didn't I think of that? And two, how do I get engaged in this thing because I think it's going to be a real winner. Of course, most of the ones that I get engaged in, like, you know, underwater basket weaving or something like that, they tend not to be so great. But uh, other people tend to do uh, really well. And so, you know, there was this company. And by the way, this is the history of everything, right? You know, you know that computers are going to change the world, so you invest in every public computer company in the late 80s, and they all go broke because of my, uh, Microsoft and Apple, et cetera. And then you go, you know, the Internet's going to change the world in the late 90s, and you're like, wow, I'm going to, you know, invest in Webvan, and, and which, you know, was went up and went down, and then you uh, global crossing. So, yeah. When I go to Dwayne Reed all the time, I'm like, hey, I need some new uh, toothpaste. And they go, it's six bucks. And I'm like, I got all these different shares and all these different companies. Pick anyone you want. And they're like, no, I'm sorry, I need cash. So if you guys need any old stock certificates that are worthless, let me know because I, I, I got a bunch. Uh, but then the, the other program relates to when Congress passed and when you're there and you're getting government benefits, there's this issue with a benefit cliff, right? As you get more money, it makes sense, the subsidies and things that you get from the government decline. How do you track that? How do you manage the benefit cliff? So there's someone else came in, again, this design insight group. This is people in the community. What do you need? And they go and, and develop that. And so we, we're trying to encourage the use of Technology. Now, that doesn't mean that's the early stage seed. Now, for example, charter schools are big in New York. We took that risk. We were the first funders in New York City of KIPP Academy, achievement first. But as they grow and they become more successful, so Stanley Druckermiller used to be on our board, and Jeffrey Canada was growing the Harlem Children's Zone, setting up a charter school, et cetera, Stanley left to become chair of his board. Should we continue to fund that? Should we look to the new thing, right? That's something that's gone. We seeded it, Series A, B, C, then it went IPO. So you need to have a a diversified portfolio. And it's safe to invest in every organization that's fantastic and has been around for 150 years. Fresh Air Fund fantastic organization really helping children but it's had to morph the evolution of the fresh air fund started because when there was tuberculosis in 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 the city the kids needed to get outside of the city to get fresh air well that's not the issue now but the issue is how do you integrate uh friends and family and camps to socialize better educate because these things are, are starting down. There's a new charter school for all you basketball fans that just opened up in, in uh, the Bronx called the Earl Monroe Charter School. Now, that's pre-seed. It's too early. 
for Robin Hood. What's it trying to do? It's a charter school. It's a lottery. Its basic motto is a book and a ball can change somebody's life. Well, the reason it's too early for Robin Hood, we don't know. Is the school doing any good? So just this year, we took in an assessment. And by the way, if you're a Nick fan, Julius Randle was up there, and he's pledged $500 for every three that he makes uh, towards reading literacy. Why? Because we did the test. Between circumstances and uh, COVID, the average reading level for these ninth graders is about sixth grade. Peter, let me just interrupt you, finally, your rule again. It's just me this time. I'm going to open it up. Okay. But you, you, you touch on things that, that we talked about yesterday, you know, how do we smart, smartly invest across asset classes and stages. It sounds like you've got your sweet spot. But we also leverage our community with co-investment. So I guess two-part question, who outside of Robinhood, who in the U.S. or the world uh, are peers that you respect, and do, how do you leverage your ecosystem outside of your Robinhood, that $200 million or the 75 you raised a couple of weeks ago? You know, how do you, because it sounds like you're approaching it like, like an investor. We, we do. First of all, that's an excellent question. Did someone write that for you? <laughs> you just fed it to me. I, you see, I walked out and I got that question. That's right. No, it's, it, it's, it's, it's because, yes, the, this is the issue of there's no patent on this. You're trying to help people that are less fortunate. So we've set up joint ventures uh, sort of outside with other not-for-profits uh, around the country. One is Tipping Point in San Francisco for you VC people who are from there that know it, other organizations around the country. We convene every year uh, at the end of February. We try to bring the leading practitioners, academics together for a conference to do this. Now, it's, it's amazing to me, by the way. So anybody that's interested, anybody that's given a dollar is invited to go to that conference. People pay $3,000 a ticket to, or more to go to the Robin Hood benefit. A lot more people are interested in going to the benefit than they are going to this uh, conference. We call it sort of no city limits, where we try to bring together the practitioners. So it is sort of amazing to me that putting a high price tag on something, uh, maybe that's part of the reason that there's a lot of stocks that are completely overvalued right now versus uh, a value investing like owning this no city limits is there. So, yes, we have to reach out to the, the leading experts. The hugest mistake I think anyone can make, and uh, I don't mean to be a cynic, but I am, is that most people that have had success and make a lot of money think they have the answers to everything. And they don't. And uh, it's funny because one of my favorite lines of all time is from Tommy Lasorda, which says, if you listen to the fans, you eventually end up sitting in the seats with them. And that's the way it is when it comes to business or not-for-profits. You can't listen to everybody. The key is, of course, the quality of the staff. And just because it's a not-for-profit doesn't mean that the people working there are themselves not-for-profits. 
you need to have a career path, you need to get them engaged, and you need to have them fully versed in the community which we serve. Robinhood, we fund not-for-profits within New York City. But we want to learn from the entire vastness of America and abroad, if necessary, to find out what works, what doesn't work. We're the, all this stuff, venture philanthropy, like everything else, is data-driven. We've set up a partnership with Columbia University where they have a poverty tracker. Everybody has a phone. They're going to look there. Now, our mission is mobility from poverty. So if we say the poverty line is 20,000, if you go from 19,500 to 20,500, would you define that as success? They're out of po- No, nobody's going to say that. Right, so we're defining success, you know, as depending on your family size, 200% of the poverty level, and a trajectory. And it has to be completely comprehensive. There are no easy solutions. Just as like most tech problems, there isn't an easy solution. If there was an easy solution, people a lot smarter than all of us would have done that. But the thing about the poverty tracker, the thing about the Blue Ridge Labs and technology is that it's essentially utilizing the smartest people to do crowdsourcing to try to come up with potential solutions to this question of poverty. Why is it trapped in in so many, not only in New York, but in other cities, particular zip codes? And yes, there's a lot of historical issues associated with that, whether it's redlining or whether it's the way that public housing was built or transportation was built or highways were built. We have to deal with where we are today, acknowledge that, and try to come up with the best solutions possible. So I'm close with Michael Carrera from Children's Aid. Love Michael. Which he has like a holistic, you can't have... One or two, three things. You need One of the first early organizations we funded was the Carrera Dempsey model. Right, but similar to his philosophy, you, you, first, you, they need food, right? They need sustenance. They, they need mentorship. They need good education, like the whole thing. And whether they're in prison and trying to, they all need roadmaps. But the other part is to the extent that so that requires philanthropic dollars and programs. The second half of our day focuses on impact investing. You talk about solutions. What's your philosophy? Because my personal, and I'm you're years and decades into this, and I'm, I was with a family office that was dysfunctional on philanthropy. I think there are a lot of families like that. They don't have your discipline. The question is, how do we, if they, we, I wish there was a taxonomy of the problems, philanthropies, and then impact investment solutions. And what I want to focus 361 is finding those bridges. Does that resonate with with your thinking at all? Absolutely. So it goes back to my first statement. A lot of families, the philanthropy is an afterthought of success. So there's somebody that's there 
you know, whether it's the first generation or second generation, then it's the third generation, and they're starting to care. And my own thing is, you may not care about the same thing that I care about. You're wrong, but that's okay. You know, you're allowed to be wrong. What I care about is by far and away more important. You know, I'm just kidding about that. But uh, as long as you have a good heart and you're trying to do something, that's what's essential. So now, but it shouldn't just be out of left field. It should be integrated into the entire philosophy of what you're doing. You should think of philanthropy as impact investing and not put it necessarily in a separate bucket. Yes, we know at the lowest level when people are unemployed and COVID is hitting, you need to, and people are suffering, they're not going to learn if they're hungry. They're not going to be able to go to school if they're homeless. You have to start at the lowest level. There's always going to be some needs for that. But we have to have a path in which we can try to provide some sort of holistic approach. That's the impact investing that comes to it. And it just can't be sort of a side bucket where a lot of this is, okay, I've made a bunch of money. Now I'm going to make myself feel better by doing some philanthropy on the side. That justifies me lobbying for a lower tax rate, right? I personally think that that's bullshit, right? You need to embrace this as part of what makes us a better society. And how do we do that? You can't justify living in a gated community where people on the outside are really hungry by going, oh, okay, I'll give a few crumbs to some food. You have to embrace it. You know, just as I said, it, you've got to take risk. And if you're wrong, it's there. Now, Robin Hood, private philanthropy is never going to replace public philanthropy. But what we could do and other not-for-profits can do is we can experiment. We can try to see what works. Because if we try and do it and it fails, all right, that's the private sector, it fails. If the government tries it and fails, we've been so embedded that, oh, that's incompetent government. So what do we try to do? We try to partner. And one of the things that we're very excited about is the new mayor coming in New York who's embracing this so if they see something that works and they have a relationship with us, they can lever it up. That has to be the public-private partnership for not-for-profits that's growing in other cities. So we have a new CEO. Our prior CEO, Wes Moore, has left, and he is running for governor of Maryland. If anyone of you guys live down there... Uh, great guy, I mean, natural-born leader, politician. I don't know if you've ever seen or read his book, The Other West Moore, uh, an amazing story. Uh, that's an example, right? We've seen many people who have been in our staff and, and just left. We had a, a Samantha Tweedy was in our staff for a while, uh, and then she just left to... Uh, lead the uh, Black Women's Economic Forum. And so that's great. Like any great organization, you want your uh, alumnus to be out there in helping grow other organizations. That's what philanthropy is. and But that's what investing is. right? Somebody does a startup and they have success. They go on and do 
other startups. Now, what is their priority? Do they do enough of this impact investing and philanthropy? And by the way, impact investing should not be, you know, where you just take stuff and, you know, throw it against a wall and see if it, it sticks. No one's going to do that. If you're taking whatever your asset allocation is and you're saying, okay, I'm going to do 10, 15% on startups, you know, you're not going to go do it to your ex-boyfriend's or girlfriend's new spouse's startup because you knew them 10 years ago. Maybe you will, I don't know. But you're going to do your due diligence and you're going to think if it makes sense. That's what you should be doing in the not-for-profit space. That's the great thing about Robinhood in New York City. When we do something, we have a long enough track record that it has a seal of approval associated with that. And now what's, what we're finding with family offices is that they would rather lever up on us. If we do something right. and they want to give money behind it because we're doing all that due diligence, that's great. See, for us, that's the same parallel. It, I'm the big believer in funds. Families go direct. Then they learn. Then they realize funds are smart. Put a ticket in. You do the diligence. You're going to have it all teed up. And you cherry pick. Or, or maybe you can add value to a program. Well, that's right? the co-invest model. Right. Right. People come in, and, and, and so I've got a fund and that, yeah, we have, you know, multi-billion dollar family offices that put a little money in. Primarily, they're paying our staff to do their due diligence. And then if they want to co-invest, if they really like it, then they co-invest. And like every good investor, I take credit for the successes, and then I'm looking to blame somebody for the failures. So, Anybody uh, want to volunteer for those? Yeah. Let's, let's open it up. Uh, questions for, for Peter? Hi. Well, you're very interesting. I could listen to you for several hours. Well, that's if you need to take a nap. <laughs> no, I'm wide awake. So my question is, um, from Robin Hood Foundation, when you say you invest in other, other firms or companies or startups or whatever it is, is it based on a specific social cause that is part of Robin Hood, or is it just across the board, you like any place that they're making an impact and it makes sense to you, you would be open to looking at it. So the thank great question. The core of our funds go to about two hundred and twenty five oh one C threes in New York. There's over three thousand of those. So there's a vetting process uh and one of the things we learned early on is that bigger organizations that are really good at writing grants aren't necessarily the best at delivering services. So you have we go and make sure we do every site visit. And we are renewing them and looking at them. Are they continuing on the mission? On Blue Ridge Labs, it's the same thing. A lot of people come in. They have ideas. They're vetted. We don't necessarily fund them. But the core of everything we do is this mission of mobility from poverty. So again, if you take the Good Call app, if you're stuck and then you're pleaded out and you have to collect, uh, uh, check the box, the probability of you being stuck in poverty is way higher. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct, but yes, you want to do, uh, you know, jobs. 
and for example. And the problem with most job training type programs, and this is tricky, is they're sort of at the end of the cycle. So if you were taking people, so the Fortune Society, and they're funding them, and they're training, hey, you've come out, you need to be a security guard, or you need to do this or that, well, guess what? When COVID hits, the, the demand for those drop dramatically. So you have to try to, you know, be ahead. Do you try, you know, it's a tech world. Do you help with sort of different coding organizations, girls who code, things like that, to try to provide the resources? Because most of them, where there's a demand, for-profits will try to come in and get people to pay a bunch of money. And then, but if you're not wealthy, if you're, if you're resource constrained, you can't go to those programs. So it continues to further, so you start here, those who have resources further the spread between those who don't. If we can try to narrow that gap by providing the tools that people need to work to get out of poverty, uh, that works. There's a, a program that uh, I think it's called Untraditional roles for, for women, where one of the first ones they taught them to be, you know, construction workers and work on high-rises and do all that stuff that was generally they were out of, but we provided the skills and the training to do that. Once they get in, and then if they become part of a union, they're set for life. That's mobility from poverty. Ooh, I've gone over time. And Mark's left. Mark's back. So, it, are there, has uh, anybody raised their hand on Zoom or, you know? Yeah, My, Michael Daly, we can't hear you, or you could try, but just give your, your question in the chat. I don't see it. But meanwhile, maybe Pulak, you want to ask your question, and, and those on Zoom, just put your, uh, your question into the chat. Yeah. So. My question was more on participation and how uh, how people are participating uh, in in the Robinhood Foundation, and specifically for uh, I have a kid who is very uh, who's who wants to do it, and she has formed several groups and she wants to participate. Uh, and uh, her her role has always been mentorship. I mean, she is 13, but she has mentored a lot of kids in and around the neighborhood, and she would want to do that at a, at a larger scale. And she feels that that has helped a number of other kids uh, through their education process. And again, uh, what I'm uh, trying to understand, what I would want to understand is there are many kids who, are, who could be uh, interested in doing different work. Is there a way or is there a path for them? Or should they ever be in touch with you? Or, or somebody at Robinhood? So the answer to that is, first of all, congratulations, right? You want to instill service in your children as early as possible. Yeah. And we have programs for teens where they come down, well, they used to, and I think they'll start, they've come down on Friday nights to, to learn. We have summer internship programs. We have programs in schools where uh, people have a Robin Hood club, 
and they get involved. When they come down, for example, on a Friday night, one of the first things that you have to learn is how do you deal with the resource constraints. So now you may have five, and, and, and in the summer we do this with real money. So you may have a bunch of organizations pitching, and then you have to decide how you're going to allocate that $50,000 to one organization among the organizations. Because we all want to do everything for everybody, but it's a resource-constrained world. So we want them to get thinking about that. We want the parents. So it's Thanksgiving time. We fund Bowery Mission. It's all great. Everyone feels really good if you go there and you help serve a meal. But what these organizations really need is the expertise. Right? If you're an accountant, you're a lawyer, can you volunteer? Can you help on those boards? Get And your children can definitely, at 13, they can be there and they can do that. And it makes them feel better. They can go on site visits. So go back to Carrera Dempsey as an example. You know, New York City, back when we started, one of the biggest issues was teen pregnancy. And we try to stay away from advocacy because you're never going to convince uh, a pro-choice to be pro-life or vice versa. Everyone can agree how, if you can postpone teen pregnancy, you're really helping three generations. The mother, the kid, and usually it's the grandmother. And Michael Carrera came up with and said, you know, the last I heard, there's guys involved in getting somebody pregnant as a teen. And if you're going to prevent teen pregnancy, you just can't constantly focus on the young woman. You have to educate young men as well. Everybody agrees with that. So you try to develop a program to to do that and, and prevent it. Now, yeah, just say no, as Betty Ford said, doesn't quite work. So you've got to have something a little more comprehensive than that, and that's what the career Dempsey model was. And so when my kids were that age and my oldest daughter, maybe 14, 15, we took her to, you know, a shelter where these young women uh, have had kids, and how do you educate them? How do they move forward? You know, how can you help them as a young child and gain a perspective? Because New York City, more than any other city, where you live, people 30 blocks away can be living in poverty. And that is a real eye opener. So you can, that's why I said earlier about, I love New York City, I love cities. Right. I'm not one of these people that want to go to Florida or whatever and live in a gated community and pretend and pat myself on the back for writing a check once a year to some organization. That's, to me, complete bullshit. Peter, I did have some Zoom questions. Okay. Um, well, one is, uh, what's your biggest need at Robin Hood and Blue Ridge Labs? Um, and another is, uh, what, how do you see the future of philanthropy? Well, you know, it's like every story. It's not the money. It's the money. So that's always the, the, the biggest need. At Robin Hood, right, the more we raise, the more we could do, we give it out. But at Blue Ridge Labs, we need mentors for people. We need people that have these ideas that might not necessarily get seeded by a traditional 
first of all, the people that are doing this, they're not going to be able to go out and friends and family and raise half a million dollars and, you know, and start something and see if it works and then go to C to a Series A. So we need those creative young people that have sort of come up with these solutions so that we can look at them. So Blue Ridge is, that's where it is. If somebody's there and has an idea, but they think it can help in the not-for-profit space, but isn't, you know, commercialized or vetted, or they have no idea how to do it, that's where we are. It's a totally comprehensive approach. And we have space in, in you know, Robin Hood is in Manhattan, Blue Ridge Labs is in Williamsburg, it's hip, there's more young people, it's an operative, collaborative community, and it's fantastic. Uh, and where do I see the nature and the future of philanthropy? So I don't want to show my political stripes too much, but I did go to Michigan. I'm a fucking lefty, and I think... I went to Michigan. I'm a centrist. So, just so uh, I think that the future of philanthropy is such that the spread between the haves and the have-nots, this seesaw, and I wrote a little bit about this on Yahoo, has gotten very wide. Now, Build Better Back, some other things are going to try to change that. And if you want to bet on any one thing, which will help philanthropy, is that, you know, we had this uh, bear market in bonds from uh, 44 to 82. And then we had a bull market from 82 to 20, 38 years each way. And there's a lot of people that want to be idyllic about, oh, let's go back to the 50s. I don't want to get into the fact that, you know, sure, women couldn't work, and if you were a minority, you could maybe work in an elevator or something. So, of course, you know, economics works. Less supply, more demand. But the one thing that happened is that by 1955, right, when Eisenhower was president, the top marginal tax rate was 92%. Of course, it was a Democrat, President Kennedy, that cut rates first, even though there's the legend that it was Ronald Reagan. But when he cut top, top tax rate to 50%, everybody was throwing a party. You can go long. If you want to go long one thing, it's that tax rates are going to go up for the next 20 or 25 years. That's going to help philanthropy because the higher the tax rate, the more advantageous it is to give. So all these rich people that are like, oh, let me make my own decisions. This is going to help my own opinion, of course, uh, make that. So philanthropy is going to grow. The intersection of needs and technology, the seesaw has to get more parallel. Now, when we look at other things socially, if you played the game of seesaw when you were a kid and you were at the bottom and someone else was at the top, the person at the top is always like, oh, please be nice and let me down. But if you're pissed off at those people at the top and you jump off, they come down pretty quickly. How is that going to be assessed? Is that going to be assessed through rapidly rising tax rates? Is that going to be rapidly assessed through market correction, which rechanges things? I don't have the answer to that. I just know that the first rule of markets, if something's not sustainable, it will end. And so philanthropy is going to change, but I think it'll be for the better. But I don't want my political stripes to show. No, no worries. We're, 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 we're a big tent here. 
And there are a lot of things that people like prison, like human trafficking, education for prisoners that go across all the aisles. But interesting point. Any other questions for Peter from Zoom or otherwise? Eddie. Good morning. Robin Hood is often touted as one of the best foundations and, 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 and sort of organizations out there. Who do you look up to? Who do you look for inspiration? Which other organizations do you think are great that you can hold yourself as a benchmark to? In all seriousness, if Jim Harbaugh can beat Ohio State, I'm really going uh, <laughs> to look to him. But... Uh, Every organization, I look at the quality of the leadership, the human capital, and board engagement. And I've mentioned a few, for example, Harlem Children's Zone. There's another one up there, Rich Berlin up at Harlem RBI. Uh, there's the Fortune Society. Uh, but then there's some that are sort of off the reservation, like uh, Benefits Trust, where they're starting to collect the data. And one of the things that, that, that we looked at, which was kind of weird, you know, when someone comes to a food pantry and they're hungry, there's generally other issues that are associated with that person who's hungry. They, they could be homeless. They could not be working. They could have children, etc. So these guys come in and start collecting data and doing assessments to trying to have a more comprehensive approach and utilize that a little bit to be a hook to benefit from that. So those are the types of organizations that I really respect that are, are innovating. And like investing, we all want to pretend that we've created the best thing, but most of the time we want, we're looking for smart people, companies, and then jump on board and try to go, go for, for that. As I said earlier, right, the, the notion that you're going to pick the winner. So let's, you, know, you could go into the crypto space and say, okay, I think it's going to change. How many crypto startups are out there? If you go back every great startup, every great technology, go back to 1920, where we started with automobiles and radios. There were hundreds of companies. Very few won. So you want to cast sort of a wide net. You don't want to put everything on that one idea. But there's a lot of great organizations, and like everything else, mostly in my mind, entrepreneurs are sort of 25 to 35. They're young. They can take risk, and that's what we look for, sort of these new startups, right? So people that started the Charter Schools Network, really young. And then they have that determination, and they're willing to fail. Our risk preferences at our age are completely different because you can't fail as much now. You don't have as much time to build it back. And so those are the type of things that I'm always keeping in the back of my mind. And it's no different in philanthropy than in, in investing. Long answer. I apologize. And I've spoken way too long, too, but I, that's okay. I told you before, you, you give me an audience and a mic. And
So, well, I think it's essential. And as, as, as I said, private philanthropy, private philanthropy is never going to replace uh, public philanthropy. But private philanthropy can be entrepreneurial and take risks. And then if it works, it uh, they they can partner. And the types of companies and organizations that that you're doing uh, with the state on that level uh, is essential. So I'm very, very bullish on that, and I'm bullish because of the next generation of leadership that we're hopefully seeing. Uh, Cory Booker said that mayors are the ones who have really true power, not senators, you know, not governors, to say, because mayors are their, their own domain. And so we're seeing, obviously, a new mayor in New York City. We're seeing a great new mayor in, in Boston. And though that type of generational leadership, they're young, they're smart, uh, will hopefully further that private partner partnership in philanthropy. Private public, excuse me. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.